Welcome to this week's episode of the Bio Breakdown Podcast. On this podcast, we break down biological research as well as interviews with authors, researchers, and professionals for everyday people. This week, we're speaking with a good friend of mine, Chase Ledoux. Chase Ledoux studies communication and specifically chemical communication in elephants. Chase, would you please tell us about yourself? Uh, hi, I'm Chase Ledoux, and I'm a PhD student in environmental science and policy at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. That's a good university there. So one thing that I always like to talk about with people getting into science, it's kind of a foundation of this podcast, is you know when do they get interested in science and biology, and then kind of the path they took to get where they are today. So when did you know that you were going to be really you know, into the scientific process in biology? I would say I didn't, I wasn't really into scientific research until I got to college and I realized that it sort of combined all the skills I had been working on since then. Um, I go through a, probably one of the biggest faux pas in biology and I like studying the animals, so I'm really into elephants and studying elephants. And most of the time, most biologists will tell you you should be more interested in the question and then pick a species that helps you answer the question the best. So I had this strong interest in elephants, and once I got to college, I realized I could work and do most for elephants through scientific research. So that's how I got into it. Okay, okay. But you were interested growing up, right? Like you were just an animal nerd as a child, correct? Oh, yeah. I watched Bill Nye. I went to the zoo all the time. I was outside. Yeah. yeah. So I was predisposed to science. It wasn't like this huge epiphany, but I definitely didn't grow up thinking I was going to be a PhD student or something like that. Right. Right. Well, I mean, you know, everybody takes a different path to get there, but uh, you found yourself doing actual research. So today we are talking about some of the research you did while you were at WKU, Western Kentucky University, um, in terms of chemical communication with elephants. So could you give us a little kind of background on what kind of the research questions are that you were looking at? Sure. So this project is really part of a subset of uh, a big research group that looks at chemical communication in elephants. And I think we're only like one of two maybe research groups in the world that studies this. And elephants, and in particular Asian elephants, which is the species I study, is interesting because we know exactly what chemicals they use to communicate to each other. So they use what are called pheromones, which a lot of people get confused with the term pheromones and think I study hormones or something. Hormones are little chemicals that communicate between the different systems in a single body. So like testosterone communicates between your brain and your reproductive system. Um, but pheromones are those chemicals that communicate between animals. So they have to travel through some medium to get to another animal. Right. And so the pheromones I studied in this project was the estrus pheromone, which females produce when they're about to ovulate. Um, and then the male pheromone um, that males produce when they're in this reproductive condition called must. Those are the two compounds I was looking at. So I, I read your paper. Can you explain the male uh, pheromone? What, 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 is that, what is that state called again, and can you explain what it actually means? Sure. So it's called must. You say it just like the word must, M-U-S-T. Must. 
Yeah, but it's spelled with an H at the end, so M-U-S-T-H. And I think it comes from an old Urdu word, which means drunk or intoxicated. All right, cool. I'm uh, down. <laughs> and elephants are said to be in must, and this was first described in ancient times because when males are in must, they get really aggressive. Captive elephants, when they were with their handlers, seemed to forget all of the commands they knew, and they would just go crazy, so they called this condition must. And so it's sort of similar to what deer go through called rut, except for elephants, there's not a must season, like there's a rutting season for deer. Different males will go into must at different times of the year. Um, and so that helps sort of diffuse the competition between males. And because males and females don't live together, only males that are in must, that are in this heightened reproductive condition, gain access to the females to breed. So... I know this is kind of like a subset of your project, but I think it's really interesting from some personal experiences that I've had. Um, so there are plenty of people out there who still believe must is like a seasonal condition, right? Even it's right. also it's also present in uh, African elephants as well. Correct. And um, so that that was pretty wild um, hearing that. So uh, could you talk about kind of group dynamics as uh, in general for elephants? Because, you know, I think a lot of people probably don't, you know, they just kind of perceive like a harmonious group of individuals, both males and females, and I think this, you know, feeds into your study um, later. Sure. So, yeah, the, like, cartoon image of an elephant is like this nice, friendly little ho-hum animal that you can just go up to and live happily ever after and elephants all get along. But they're just like people, and they have their moods and their personalities. And at least for African elephants, it's been pretty well studied in terms of their social behavior. So we know that females form these related groups where it's like a grandmother and her daughters, and then their offspring all live in this cohesive group called a herd. And then whenever a male wants to gain access to that herd for breeding purposes, he's got to be into must. Um, and that's when females allow them access. When a male is born into his natal group, he usually spends the first 10 or 12 years there, and then he gets a little too rambunctious, and the females sort of kick him out, and so the male disperses from his natal group, and he can either spend the rest of his life as sort of a solitary bull elephant that wanders between these groups, or usually the younger males group together into what are called bachelor groups, and they sort of learn their manners, what a lot of people compare it to. They learn how to be an elephant. And for a long time, we thought Asian elephants sort of had this same social organization. But now we're learning that um, the social connections that we see in Asian elephants are a lot more temporary, and they exhibit what's called a fission-fusion group, where the bonds between elephants really change day by day. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's really fascinating, because like you said, like the, the cliche or cartoon image of an elephant is that there's just this homogenous group of males and females living together, but there's really kind of a advanced dynamic that goes into when they actually spend time together and that's going to be important in your study i just wanted to kind of get that out of the way before we get into your experimental design so um could you talk a little bit about like specifically the hypothesis that you set out to investigate and then get into kind of the steps you took to pursue that sure so as i mentioned earlier i was looking at how elephants communicate with these two compounds, the male pheromone and the female pheromone. 
And so we know that the concentration of the female pheromone that the females produce, it raises in concentration right until a female ovulates, and then shortly after ovulation it goes almost down to zero, and then it'll rise again when the female ovulates again. And the concentration of the pheromone that the males produce also changes in concentration, so it raises in concentration as a male approaches must, and it remains elevated until a male leaves must. And then as males age, they produce more and more of this pheromone as their must cycles get longer and more intense. So I really wanted to know if elephants could differentiate between these concentrations, if they would respond differently to a low concentration versus a high concentration, and whether that response was altered by the characteristics of the receiver itself. So whether it was a female or a male sniffing that compound, or if they had been exposed to mates before, or if they were an old elephant versus a young elephant, stuff like that. Okay, okay. So, you know, from my perspective, you just kind of traveled around the country and went to all kinds of zoos and had a great time, but I'm sure that's not what it was on the ground when you were actually doing the research. So what were the steps that you took to, like, investigate this question and how, like, in individual experiments, how did you kind of go about that? Yeah, well, I did post a lot of pictures on Facebook that made it look like I was just hanging out. <laughs> okay. But it was a lot of work, and I'm here to dispel any myth that the life of an elephant biologist just means hanging out with elephants all day. It's a lot of paperwork and preparation and planning. Um, so the data I collected for this experiment um, most of it was collected during three months of a summer, and it was at 10 different zoos around the U.S., and I traveled, it was like a week at each zoo. <clears throat> and I had synthetic um, compounds for each of these pheromones, so I had a synthetic female pheromone and a synthetic male pheromone that was made in the lab. And essentially what I did is, before I wanted to expose the elephants to these chemicals, I made different dilutions or different concentrations of each compound. And the day I got to the zoo, I had five or six different concentrations I wanted to test, along with a blank control sample, which was essentially mm -hmm. just the liquid I produced the compound in to make sure the elephants were responding to the pheromone and not the compound I dissolved the pheromones in. Okay. And so I'd pour these in a random pattern that was unknown to me, so I would have no bias and want the elephants to sniff like the higher versus the lower concentration. Right. And then I essentially just set them out. The elephants were led into the yard, and I watched to see what they did for an hour. And this is what's called a bioassay or behavioral bioassay. You're essentially just seeing how interesting those compounds are to the animals by seeing how they respond to them. So elephants are pretty cool because they have these long noses called trunks. And so you can really tell what the elephant is responding to based on how that trunk moves. So in the paper, for instance, we have a picture of this like stereotype sequence of responses that an elephant will go through based on how interesting the chemical is. And so the climax of that stereotype sequence of responses is called a flame-in response. And a bunch of different mammals do this too. It's not just elephants who do it. Right. Uh, so, like, humans even have what's called a vomeronasal organ or, like, a Jacobson's organ. you probably heard of that with, like, snakes. A lot of people refer right. to them as snakes. 
And essentially, it's just this different perception that some animals have to where they can perceive different chemicals. And so an elephant is located at the roof of its mouth, just like ours is, and just like your dog's is, and just like pretty much every other mammal's is. And so what they do is they pick up some of the sample with the end of their trunk, and they bring it up to the roof of their mouth. And so if an elephant does a flame in towards something, we know they're really interested in that. Right. So a, a stereotyped response to a stimulus, that just means kind of a, a like pre-programmed action, basically, right? Yeah, it's sort of invariant in its form. Um, so if something is so conserved repeatedly and across different animals and across the whole species... We know it's probably got some sort of evolutionary significance behind it for it to be so similar so many times. Right. So if they encounter the, the same stimulus, uh, you know, if, if all conditions remain the same, the probability that they'll do the same action is likely, right? That's, right. It's, it's, a, it's a fixed action pattern, basically. Sort of, yeah. And then the flame response, like you were talking about, that's putting that whatever chemical stimulus, the chemical compound, and then making contact with that vomer... You should say it, because I am out of practice. It's called vomeronasal, or just a VNO. Yeah, the VNO, which, as you said, is in, in the mouth, right? So if you know that uh, the GIF, the famous GIF, I think it's an Impala sniffing the uh, privates of a female, and it goes, do she got that booty dough... And then, <laughs> and then he lifts his upper lips and uh, moves his head around from side to side. He is enacting a flamen response, actually. Uh, that's what that is. There you go. So. It all makes sense now. <laughs> yeah, I hope the memers out there have learned something, <laughs> if no one else, by this point. So you traveled around to these different zoos. And you expose these these compounds at different concentrations to different elephants mm -hmm. uh, and then evaluated their responses. Could you kind of get into um, how you evaluated those responses? And then also, like, was there any kind of method to picking the individual elephants you, you know, exposed to or like males or females and how that differed in your planning uh, to enact these experiments? Sure. So um, essentially I picked the elephants based on cost and convenience because I'm a poor grad student who got no funding. So I had to get everything by myself. Um, and so I planned this road trip of 10 zoos that started all the way down in Florida and sort of worked my way up to Texas and then all the way back up close to Kentucky so I could be back in time for classes when they started. <laughs> but I also pick zoos based on whether or not they had male elephants because male elephants are pretty rare in zoos. Only about half of the zoos in the United States that have elephants at all have male elephants. Um, and so I wanted to make sure I was getting the most bang for my buck. If I was just sampling females over and over again, I wouldn't have enough males represented in my data set um, to really interpret the results correctly. And so when I was performing these bioassays, what I was really doing was looking for the number of times an elephant responded to something. Because an elephant, when you let it into its yard, it's going to smell everything. Because elephants are very olfactory-oriented. If an elephant had to depend on one sense for the rest of its life, it would choose its sense of smell. Because it, mm -hmm. its trunk is pretty much the gateway to its world. So it's going to smell everything. So I can't just say, oh, the elephant smelled it. It must be interested in it. I've got to see how many times the elephant smelled it. 
And if it smelled it more times, like if it smelled one of the samples more than the other sample, then we know it's interested in the first sample more than the second sample. And so we can gauge relative interest or sort of evolutionary relevance of the sample to that individual. Right, right. And then um, was time duration of an interaction something you also measured, or is that insignificant, just quantity of interactions? So the thing with elephant chemosensory responses is they happen very quickly. So an elephant could really do what we call a drive-by, and it's literally walking to the other side of of its yard to get some food, but on the way it sees its chemical samples. So it'll perform a lot of different actions towards that sample, but it's still walking in space. So duration, it, it's like milliseconds, so it's not really significant. Even the flame in response, which is like every time it happened, I jumped up and down. It's really this like half second thing where an elephant brings its trunk to its mouth, and what's happening in the elephant's brain, I can't see, but I know it's significant because it was a flame in response. But we also did measure sort of the broader behavioral outcomes of these chemicals, where we looked at if these chemicals changed the amount of time the elephant spent walking around or exploring the rest of its environment or feeding or interacting with other elephants to see if we could apply these in any sort of management scenario. Um, but that's another paper that right. we're working on now. Right. So when it came to your results, what did you find... And then we're going to talk about the significance of that afterwards. Sure. So, well, not surprisingly, we found that the higher concentration pheromones for both sexes and both compounds were more interesting than the lower concentration ones because the elephants responded more to the higher concentrations than they did to the lower concentrations. Right. So I, I'll, I'm sorry. I, I want to ask you. So you tested two different pheromones, one for male and one for female. So mm -hmm. is that's not the only pheromones that the elephants release, though. Is, are these the main ones, or are they the only ones? I'm not. I'm, I'm no animal expert, so. So pheromones can have different purposes, whether that's for synchronizing reproduction, like these pheromones do, or some pheromones help an elf or an animal locate food, or communicate with predators, or find each other. But these are the only ones we've identified in elephants, and so these are the reason I studied these. Also, because they're so tightly linked to reproduction, and I'm interested in reproduction, these are the ones I picked. Aren't we all? Gotcha, gotcha. That's, aren't we all? That's, yeah. I, I wasn't sure if that was... Yeah. All right. That makes sense, though. But interestingly, while we're on that point, so we don't know what pheromones African elephants use at all. They don't definitely don't use these. But what's interesting is the case of convergent evolution, because... There are other animals that use these exact same compounds, but they're like bark beetles and moths and like insects and stuff. I was actually going to ask you about that going forward because oh. I remember that from a chemical ecology class. There we go. <laughs> as, uh, as you know, I may have made a stupid mistake in that class, <laughs> but I did pay attention and I showed up and put the effort in every day. I just want to make that clear. You know, as a public re Wait. record that will persist what through was, time. What was the stupid mistake you said? Okay. Uh, he slipped through the first class or something? No, like no, 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 no. So, <laughs> this is a digression, and we can afford uh -huh. those at this point in time. <laughs> this is important to me to publicly rectify this decision. All right, let, yeah, so, let, yeah, let's hear it, Chris. The f we had take-home tests in this class. Huh? And the first test was quite short, 
maybe two hours long. You had a total of, I think, four hours to complete the test. And I did quite well on it. It was easy, whatever. Second test rolls around, and I'm expecting, you know, the first test to be kind of a representative of what other tests are going to be. So I start filling out this test, and the questions just keep coming. And you just you have to write full multi-paragraph responses to each question. Oh, no. And comes the time where I don't know how much time I've actually spent on this, but I know it's getting close to four hours on this test, and I have to finish it and turn it in in four hours. So I make the decision to skip a question and then fill out the extra credit questions at the end, because I can answer those better, and then come back. So I like half answered one of the final questions. And then we come into class the following day, or not the following day, obviously, but you know, the, I After think that the... was on like Thursday or whatever, we took the test, and then Monday next week when the tests are graded, uh, <clears throat> professor walks to the front of the room and he says, you know, guys, uh, out of everything you could have done while taking a test, uh, leaving a question blank or just partially filled in, you know, not to get personal, uh -huh. but that's a pretty stupid mistake. <laughs> and so I lived with that for going on two years now, three years now of, of having to deal with that. I forgot all about that. I just remember you coming to class late because you, like, slept late or something. Oh, no, I did not slept late. I got lost. That was first day. That also happened. First day as a first year graduate student in the class of the department head. Yeah. It really takes some balls to do that again. Some balls or just, you know, immense deals of stress and <laughs> <laughs> getting lost on the 15 minute drive. Actually, expecting to park in a parking lot that apparently fills up by 8 o'clock in the morning is not a good strategy either. So anybody who's going to college should keep that in mind. <laughs> All right. So we talked a little bit about the results. Um, if there's anything else on that you want to kind of get into, but we also want to talk about the implications and like what learning this actually does for the scientific community as well as kind of like why everyday people might care about this if there's any kind of those implications. Well, pheromones for everyone, you know, everyone's interested in pheromones. Oh, yeah? Are you going on uh, pheromonestore.com for your dating Not game? me, I swear to God. Don't look <laughs> at my search history. <laughs> but uh, anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, the results are interesting. One, for like the pure scientific joy of just finding out something new. Um, and two, for like the conservation management, bigger picture, how can we save elephants' purpose? And so we'll start with like the scientific reasons I think these results are interesting. And some of the results I didn't talk about yet are that we found out that the response thresholds, when elephants can first start responding to these chemicals, like the lowest concentrations that they can, that changes based on whether or not an elephant's been exposed to a mate of the opposite sex. So, like, we called these, I think in the paper, like, inexper or experienced and naive animals. Yeah. yeah. So, like, an experienced animal would have a lower response threshold for the pheromone of the opposite sex. So, like, if we were talking about male elephants, experienced male elephants could smell the female pheromone at a much lower concentration than naive animals could. Mm. <clears throat> and th these results are something we could only find with the captive elephants I used. If I went out to, like, say, India and wanted to study wild Asian elephants and I did the same thing with wild elephants, 
chances are I would not be able to find a male or a female elephant that had never seen an animal of the opposite sex or been around breeding or have been bred. But we in zoos, we have animals that may be 50 or 60 years old and have never reached or have never been bred or have never even seen a member of the opposite sex. So we can independently test the effects of age and experience. And so in this study, we found out that experience was really important. And so in the world of chemical ecology, this is really cool because it, in animal behavior and animal communication, it's often thought that the chemical communication channels, like those involving pheromones, are pretty fixed evolutionarily, meaning if an animal is exposed to a chemical, they're going to behave the exact same way time after time. And we found out, no, that's not actually the case. Different things about the receiver, such as sex and reproductive experience, actually change the way these animals are perceiving the chemicals, which is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Um, I think that also says a lot about how important the, the like sexual dynamics is, or sexual dynamics are among groups of elephants, right? Right. Um, and how that uh, influenced the social interactions and all that, which, like you said, you know, uh, I loved how you guys phrased it in the paper where it was, like, impossible to find, uh, like, inexperienced individuals. That's just such a beautiful way to phrase <laughs> that. <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> but, well, yeah, uh, but it's sort of true because all these elephants... I mean, if you think about the life of a female elephant, she's going to grow up in the herd she was born in. And so all around her, even if she's not the one being bred, she sees other females being bred. And so in a zoo world, an elephant may have been brought over to this country when she was two years old and lived only with females for the rest of her life and has never seen a male. So these captive animals are really valuable for research, just as much as, say, like education and conservation of the species. That's pretty wild. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Ironically wild if or, we're or, captivity versus wild animals. Alright, you could that, that that's pretty captive. Pretty captive that's pretty captive. We're gonna <laughs> pioneer that phrase. It's gonna be, you know, <laughs> when you're trying to shit on somebody and oh, that's pretty not captive, dude. Know it. <laughs> like, hey dude, I want you to come over and like drink O'Doul's and play chess with me. And we'll be captive all night. <laughs> yeah, and like there are gonna be Just no girls chill. there. That's pretty captive, <laughs> yeah. dude. That's pretty captive. Um uh, <laughs> So you were also going to talk about um, kind of implications, so why people should care kind of in the context of saving elephants. Sure. So I think any biologist, if you're studying any living species, whether that be small mammals in Africa or plants <laughs> or elephants, that you sh your research should contribute even in some small way to the conservation or the sustainability of that species. So elephants being endangered are definitely no exception to that. And so a lot of people don't know about the conservation threats facing Asian elephants, especially compared to African elephants. So almost everyone knows that African elephants are in danger of extinction because people poach them for their tusks, which are ivory, which people in different cultures around the world value for some reason. But Asian elephants really don't have the ivory poaching problem. The problem that Asian elephants are facing is that their habitat is quickly shrinking. Because if you look at a map and you look where Asian elephants are found in like Southeast Asia, Central, South Asia, these are areas of the world where human populations are like booming. And so elephant habitat is shrinking and becoming more fragmented. And as those habitats become more fragmented 
and elephants and people meet more often, that's what we call human elephant conflict. It's just like a form of human wildlife conflict, but it's with elephants. And so most of the time this happens when like farmland butts up right against like protected elephant land and elephants see those crops, which are an easy, nutritious form of food. And so they'll go and raid the crops. And a lot of these are small farms where these farmers depend on those crops for their to live. And so like a group of elephants can wipe out a whole farmer's crops for the year in just one night. So this is a really dangerous problem because elephants are so big if they're in must, they can be really dangerous. <laughs> and so this is the biggest problem, I would say, besides just straight up like habitat loss facing Asian elephants. Right. And so, no, no, I don't have a question. Uh, I, 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 you cut out on the audio, so I couldn't tell if you were still talking, but please continue about Okay. Yeah. So there have been a bunch of different strategies to try and help mitigate this human elephant conflict but the problem with elephants is one they're really big so all of like any barrier you could come up with for an elephant like say an electric fence or even like a permanent fence yeah. either has to be really strong or like in the case of an electric fence a lot of these areas are pretty remote and so the electricity goes out pretty quickly <clears throat> and on top of that challenge they are really, really smart, too. So any sort of deterrent you could use, like a loud noise or lights or fire or anything like that, elephants habituate to really quickly. They get used to it very quickly. So with this study, we've shown, and sort of the broader research of our research group has shown that these pheromones are really important to these elephants. And so maybe we should use these pheromones in a way to help mitigate human-elephant conflict. And so this is sort of strategy has been used with insect pests that also obviously use pheromones to communicate with each other, but never on the scale of like an elephant. So maybe if we put like, if you know that a male like is crop rating a lot, maybe what you do is you put a female pheromone that they'd be attracted to over in the habitat you're okay with them being in. And you put some sort of aversive pheromone, like the musk pheromone that they would be repelled from amongst the crops. So the elephant would, tend to move away from those. And the cool thing about pheromones is that the elephants produce them themselves constantly. So those sort of signals, even if there's not an elephant in the crops producing that musk pheromone, they're probably going to encounter an, another elephant that is producing that pheromone in their normal elephant lives. And so that signal is reinforced and they don't habituate to it as easily. Right. And uh, isn't that referred to as a push-pull strategy in um, how to do it? So yeah, the push is the negative stimulus, and then the pull is the positive stimulus. So the combination of the two is is theoretically a good impulse for the animal to leave an area, right? Because they're experiencing the negative stimulus where they are. They can detect the positive stimulus or stimuli at a different location, and then in theory, they would uh, move themselves to that towards that positive stimulus. Right, exactly. And so with insect pests, where this has been tested out a lot, normally they just produ- like they grow crops that naturally produce like either the push or the pull chemicals. Mm-hmm. But there are no plants that we know of that naturally produce these pheromones that the elephants are using. So we'd actually have to apply them in some sort of artificial way. So the uh, going back to like the, the push of the pull type thing. So mm-hmm. the push would be like an aversion you put a pheromone out that they don't like so they leave right yeah right 
Um, so in your paper, you mentioned that you prepared chemical or the you know the, the pheromones like within twenty four hours of going out to use. How long would you think that something like that would last? Just outside, just as a de- deterrent or for an elephant or some insect or something. I mean, honestly, probably not very long, especially in sort of the field conditions where it's raining and everything. In a zoo condition, it's like ideal because I know where the animal is going to be. I know exactly where the spot is. Right. There are no grasses in the way. But in field conditions, that wouldn't exist. And on top of that, these chemicals are non-volatile, which means just because of their structure, they don't evaporate very easily. So an elephant has to be right on top of it to actually perceive it. Uh, It's another problem we'd have to run into. I'm not a chemical engineer or anything like that, but I know there are ways to make chemicals volatile by binding them to different chemicals that are, are volatile. So that's a possibility. There's also a possibility of like aerosolizing it to where you'd have some sort of automated dispenser, dispense these into the air at certain intervals. Um, my professor, go ahead. I was going to say, like a like a glade, like a glade <laughs> and cats. Yeah. We don't want to get a trademark or, or, or you know, <laughs> legal battles with glade, uh, but, but, you know, cats, when those things go off, and that has nothing to do with chemicals, I'm not trying to put it, <laughs> but just like the, the, the actual impulse of the hissing sound, right? That's something they respond to. Uh, so if you do that chemically with a, a dispenser <laughs> that will, like you said, at intervals put out this compound, that would be that'd be interesting to look at for sure. Right, yeah. And so my professor who's on this paper and also Dr. Stokes, who is Chris's <laughs> actor's research advisor. Mike. Were, yeah, Mike. Uh, they were working on a project in Kenya to because African elephants also experience human-elephant conflict. They came up with these automated scarecrows, which they look nothing like a scarecrow. It was just like this box on a pole that had both like an infrared sensor or a motion detector or something like that. And it was paired to like a loudspeaker and a flashing light. So like if an animal walked by, it would play these and hopefully the animal would go away. And then they even like collared some problem elephants in the area, like GPS collars. So one, they knew where they were. And two, they were connected to these electronic scarecrows so that whenever an elephant came close, even if they didn't walk in front of it, the scarecrow would go off. And so maybe something like that, you could pair then a chemical dispenser. So you'd have like the sounds, the lights and the chemical dispenser. And so hopefully the combination of those would be like super effective in getting the elephants not to raid the crops. Right, and like you said, like yeah, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on, you know, human elephant conflicts. And we're talking about two different species of elephants. You specialize with the Asian elephants, in, the, in terms of the research we're discussing here. My experience with African elephants is uh, the main, you know, impact of my research would be to help develop management strategies that would alleviate human elephant conflicts. So that crop rating dynamic is, you know, true for both Asian and African elephants. And I know people are scrambling to find ways to kind of alleviate that pressure, whether it be explaining to people that elephants might not be causing all of the problems they think they are, or developing strategies to keep them away, which spans everything from rubbing pepper oil on fences to bees 
and like having beehives placed near crops or trees that they want to protect, all the way up to develop, developing mechanical means like a aerosol dispenser or something like that. So that is that's pretty pretty wild. Well, yeah, it's a huge problem not just for the elephants but for the people too. Right. And heard news coming out of like India recently where politicians actually have to come up with solutions for elephants in like their speeches and their political campaigns because people are actually concerned about this problem. Right. Which that is awesome. I mean, it's like horrible that the situation has arose in the first place. Mm-hmm. But it's great to hear that it's on the forefront of discourse in, you know, how the public is going to choose to attack this problem, you know? Right. It, 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 it is, And the fact that they're mentioning it means that it's a problem that the public actually speaks about because somebody who's just trying to be elected would not try to waste their time or anything like that with issues that are not, you know, on the minds of, of the people who are going to be voting. Right. Um, so, to get away a little bit from that, is it or is it not true that at one or many points in time, you had elephant excrement in your refrigerator? I have elephant excrement in my freezer right now, actually. <laughs> Could you please talk about why and how often this occurs? Well, to be honest... There's only elephant shit in my freezer right now because I forgot it was there. I get elephant shit shipped to me right... Am I allowed to say shit? Um, as, so you haven't heard this on the first episode we discussed. You know, We're talking about real science, which means we're going to use real words. Okay, and I can, so I can use different words. You can okay. use shit, but you cannot use the reproductive word. We've limited ourselves from the reproductive word. Okay, sounds good. Gotta make limits somewhere, right? Yeah, exactly. So I've got fe- elephant fecal samples in my freezer because I get them <laughs> for my current research. I'm looking at hormone levels in these fecal samples. And so I had a bunch shipped to me because I don't trust them to get shipped to the university because it like gets stuck in a mailroom somewhere, and I feel much better if I have control over I, it all. I, I hear you. No, it only, only makes sense. Right. Especially the, the your samples, you want to make sure that they actually are where they should be. And you right. know, they get to where they should be. We're getting and some so, passionate science. Well, science well you know what? Here. It's it's your stuff. Right. right. It's your stuff. Your you should be putting your heart and soul into whatever you're working on. Anyway. Right. Uh-huh. Well, with these I got like 20 ships to me at once, and so I moved them to the freezer in my lab, but I just forgot one, and so it's been in my freezer ever since. <laughs> Is this, is this 20 balls of poop? For people who don't know what elephant poop looks like, um, at least, okay, I can speak for African elephant poop and not necessarily Asian elephant poop, but African elephant poop is like, you know what a coffee bean looks like? Or like a rabbit, you know, you see piles of rabbit poo or deer poo even, where it's like little beans, right? But just like scale that up several thousand times. And right. you have a, a, a Frenching bean of vegetable matter and waste product all in one convenient package. Yeah, so like, I'd say, I mean, it depends on the size of the elephant, of course, but like an average bolus that comes out of an elephant is like the size of a human head, i say, <laughs> and like at every drop they produce like four or five of them, like a good pile is four or five, but they can produce more, obviously. And elephants are really important for the environment because they 
are good seed dispersers because they have poor digestive efficiency. So elephants eat about 200 pounds of food a day, and they're only 40% efficient at what they digest, so 120 pounds comes out the other end every day. And right. most of it goes, comes out the same way it came in, which is pretty cool. But anyway. Now, now I don't want to get too much into scatology here. <laughs> I don't want to talk about poop too much, and, you know, I'm no expert on it, but I've seen quite a bit of poop. And of all animals, all shapes and sizes, and my own. And elephant poop is actually pretty interesting. As he was saying, you know, um, they don't have this digestive efficiency. And uh, so that means they pass a lot of matter out unprocessed at the end of it, right? So depending on the... And that, that could be affected seasonally, at least in African elephants. I don't know about Asian elephants. Chase could speak to that. But when I was having having trouble collecting seeds for my research, which um, was during a drought, so trees were not setting seed, the the person I was working under suggested I look for those seeds in elephant poop, because elephants, uh, you know, have, this is one of their favorite trees that they were feeding on, and they're going to pass a lot of those fruits and seeds into their, uh, their excrement. And that wasn't the case because the trees weren't setting seed, but it's crazy to think, you know, that could be, you know, influenced by seasonality, whether or not fruits are there, and, like, how much grass the elephant is eating based on precipitation, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, not to talk about poop too much. Do you want to hear another cool elephant? This will be the last elephant poop fact. Oh, excellent. But yeah. I And it's not related to living elephants. Actually, going back to the woolly mammoth, I've heard from some researchers that there are still plants that exist today in, like, Alaska and Canada and Siberia that actually still depend on going through a mammoth gut to actually germinate optimally. So, like, yes, yes, human, yes. It's, it's, like, mind-blowing to think about that, I mean, mammoths were alive when the ancient Egyptians were alive. It was that recent. Yes. Um, and it's cool to think about there are still things that, like co-evolved with these mammoths that are no longer here. A little little side topic here. I did a research project in undergrad where I had to develop management strategies for species of conservation concern, and I was just assigned a state. And I think I was given Tennessee. And a lot of the plant species that are of conservation concern um, are actually of conservation concern and is hypothesized because there are no longer mammoths that distribute the seeds. There are a lot of North American tree species where, like, they produce uh, these seed pods or fruits, and then, you know, Americans today are like, oh, man, that's just what they do. No, those were, like, advertisements for herbivores and, like, specifically mammoths to come along and eat them and then distribute them across the landscape. And, um, like you said, there are some species... You know, this might be a concept we get into a different podcast, different episode, where they rely on passing through the digestive tract of an animal to be successful, and that animal is no longer there. And this is within, you know, 10,000 years or, you know, 20,000 years, however long you want to say, um, depending on the area you're, you're speaking about. Um, and that is like a fascinating topic in its own right of plant species we interact with on a daily basis, like the tree in your front yard, 
might be reliant on an interaction with an elephant that no longer exists. And then here we are today, like, why, why is there only one tree for every 300 miles? I don't know. Or like avocados. That's the reason their seeds are so big. It's because they depended on going through this big animal gut, and they no longer have to. Right. <laughs> that is crazy. Yep. So, enough about poop. When I asked you to come on... You were like, this better not be some kind of gotcha journalism about elephants. <laughs> and I just want, you know, as someone who supports animal captivity, if it contributes to education and conservation, because a little bit of my background, I was inspired by going to the St. Louis Zoo and seeing animals there. And that was really kind of what got me into biology, partially, and kind of especially conservation. So there's kind of a very common mindset among the public that we shouldn't be keeping animals in captivity and zoos are just all bad and all of this negative publicity some of it justified granted and if it is justified you know we need to take care of those problems but especially with an intelligent species like you work with elephants you know asian elephants um you know there's a lot of discourse out there in the public about how we maybe shouldn't have these animals and <laughs> i want you to talk a little bit to that issue of why you think it's okay as someone who works with these animals, both in captivity and the wild. Sure. So I think I'll start with, like, the biggest misconception. And I get this if I go to the dentist's office or, like, out to dinner or anything like that, and I mention elephants and that I work with zoo elephants, and people are like, oh, don't you wish they were set free? And no, I don't wish they were set free. And a lot of people think that it we are unaware of elephant lives in zoos and that there are just these people who like to make money off of elephants and they put them in this cage so people would pay to come see the elephants and then you get rich doing that. And that's not the case. The management of elephants and a whole bunch of other species in zoos, at least in this country, um, their lives are carefully monitored and there are scientists who devote their whole careers to studying animal welfare in zoos and making sure we're taking the best care of these animals that we possibly can. And so elephants being so big and so intelligent and definitely subject to a lot of public concern, that priority and that um, need to monitor their welfare is even greater. So the life of your average zoo elephant um, is pretty enriched. If I was reincarnated as an animal, I would want to be a zoo or, a zoo or circus elephant because uh, they get all the food they need. Um, it's presented in different ways now, so elephants have to exercise to get their food, so it's not just plopped in a pile at the beginning of the day and the zookeeper comes back the next day and puts a new pile of food there. There's also no predators that elephants have to worry about. They have veterinarians there 24 hours a day, so they don't have to worry about disease or anything like that. Um, it's a pretty cushy life. Yeah? I, I mean, people often cite for elephants at least, oh, elephants could walk 40 miles a day, and how could you possibly do that in a zoo? It's like, well, we probably couldn't do it in a zoo in any sort of meaningful way. But you have to realize, if you measure an elephant in the wild walking 40 miles a day, that's probably a really stressed out elephant. <laughs> yeah, Elef absolutely. <laughs> elephants, as smart as they are, they're sort of like people. I live in a one-bedroom apartment, and that's good enough for me, even though humans evolved to be these nomadic wanderers, because I have all the resources I need, just like an elephant. They have all the resources they need in a zoo. 
They've got the companions. They've got the food. They've got the keepers that care for them. They've got water, shade, everything they need. There's no need for them to go 40 miles a day. Right. I think a lot of people, you know, there is there is like a, a uh, an impulse to expend energy, even in people. But that is like a evolutionary or biological impulse based on need, right? Right. And so uh, people who say, oh, this squirrel, you know, this squirrel was tagged in Missouri and it ended up in Tennessee somehow. And that's like a miracle story. And it's like, well, this squirrel just went through, you know, like w- if you could drive to work and it should take you 15 minutes, but it takes you 40 minutes. Well, there were, you hit three red lights, and there was a car accident. All that got in the way for you to travel a short distance. Well, an animal must be going through a very difficult time in its life for it to travel that exceptional distance, you know? It was chased certain X amount of distance. Then it was looking for water, and it found water, but water was far away from food. Then it had to go find food and all this kind of stuff. So If, if you're talking about squirrel, that squirrel seems some shit, dog. What? Yeah, it has. Yeah, the squirrel has seen some things. Now, I just think that's a really important um, topic to address because people who actually, you know, have the best intentions just mm-hmm. kind of adopt this this mindset. But what, what they really don't understand is what you just talked about, how these animals are cared for to, like, the utmost level of accuracy you know, scientifically, their diet is monitored, their water is monitored, their exercise is monitored, their interactions with other individuals is monitored. It's all there and evaluated, and if something needs to be tweaked or adjusted, it is. Now, you know, I'm not saying this is true for all species, because some species, as has been said, you know, over time, in experience with captive situations, have needed more space or whatever than they were given, but you know, I think generally speaking, um, they do zoo animals do pretty well because the impulse of the zoo. You're not going to find somebody who works at the zoo that doesn't care about the animals. Right. Yeah. People don't devote their lives to a career because they like being evil towards a certain <laughs> animal for the rest of their life. And if they do, they get figured out when they're in middle school. So. Right. <laughs> Like, being a zookeeper is not a glamorous job. It's not playing with animals all day. It's, like, scooping fecal samples and (laughs) cleaning exhibits and having to deal with the paperwork and the public and everything like that. And so people who are zookeepers are usually very, very passionate, not only about the animals they care for, but also their wild counterparts. And so they're often pretty involved in sort of conservation efforts to help save the species they care for. Right. And it really, you know, I had experienced these kind of discussions with people before and these experiences. And recently I've interviewed for a job, and one of the interview questions was, how do you feel about animals in captivity? And, like, I know for a fact that that question is specifically designed to, like, root out nut jobs that are going to try and release their animals into the into the wild, which would not be beneficial Um I don't know if you if you know about mink farms in this country, or even the UK, for example. Do you know about minks? I, I know a little bit about minks, just because a lot of animal welfare research is done on them, but I'm sure you know a lot more about them than I do. Right, so so minks, you know, there are wild species, uh, there, there are wild populations of minks in North America and Europe, if I'm not wrong, and they are a predator and they are, you know, 
you know, specifically designed to hunt down prey to extremes. Like, they will climb to the top of 70-foot trees to kill a squirrel and eat it. But mink in North America specifically are classified as livestock because the population has been under captive control in the livestock agriculture industry for so long that those individuals cannot survive in the wild. So there have been mink farms where people come and release 13,000 minks at the same location at the same time. So at one point, these are domestic animals who have been fed by people, kibble, for their entire lives. So they can't hunt or fend for themselves. And two, the ones that do still maintain that interaction, that, that sorry, the instinct, are all competing with them, each other at the same place at the same time. So you're going to have way too much predation pressure at the same time, and then you're going to bump them out to areas where there are not prey resources available. That was a wild diversion from the topic of elephant chemical communication, but I, st I still think it was productive in terms of captivity of intelligent species. I think so too. <laughs> All right, Chase. Well, we've had you for about an hour. Uh, I just want to say thank you for coming on. If there's any last thoughts you want to talk about, about your research or what you're working on now, I think it would be a good time to talk about that. Sure. So I have gotten inspired to study more and more about elephants the more and more I work with them. And so right now my PhD research focuses on must, which we talked about earlier, and sort of looking at how must varies in Asian elephants depending on the environment. And so in about six months, I'm heading over to Sri Lanka, which is the small island nation off the coast of India. I'm going to be there for between nine and 12 months, just following elephants every day, collecting their poop, watching what they do. And I'm going to come back over here. I'm going to watch some zoo elephants and see how their must manifest itself and sort of compare the wild and the captive. Because like I said, zoos offer a really good controlled environment but they might not be exactly what the wild scenario is. So hopefully that sort of comparison will give me a bigger picture and so we can understand must and Asian elephants a lot better than we do right now. Awesome, dude. That's really, really yeah, cool. That, that sounds great. But I have to ask you, though, so if you're collecting poop in Sri Lanka, mm -hmm. what do you do with it and how do you get it back to where you're going to analyze Sample it? Sample it before you go back. Well, that would be the ideal scenario. I don't know if that's possible. Well, it it is possible is to it? analyze all over there, but that's not what we're doing. The hardest part is actually getting the poop because they're wild elephants that you can't put inside for a second while you go collect their poop. You have to wait for a while until they move away from their poop. Yeah. So once yeah. you get it, um, you have to extract the hormones from it. And so we use just methanol. It's just a generic alcohol and since um, the hormones are located in the cells, or the, I should say, the hormone metabolites, because once they've gone through the digestive system and are pooped out, it's not actually the hormone itself. It's whatever chemical is left after it's been metabolized. Those are attracted to the alcohols. The alcohol will, ex what we call, extract the hormones from the poop. And so we have a little tube filled with alcohol and hormone metabolites and a bunch of other stuff. Then, since alcohol evaporates so readily, we dry down that sample. So all the alcohol evaporates out while the dry sample and all the hormones that I'm interested in are stuck to the tube still, and then I can ship the tubes back here. And so that way I can analyze the tubes all in the same lab. 
because the thing with hormone labs is that you could take the same sample from the same animal collected at the same time and analyze it in two different labs, even if they were right down the hall from each other, and you'd get totally different results. So to be able to compare the data between animals, you're going to have to analyze that on the same labs. I'm coming back here to do that all. Dude, that sounds wild. And I hope in the future we can get you back on for some updates and especially stories from the field. Yeah, man. All right. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, Chase Ledoux, for coming on, speaking, speaking to us about elephant chemical communication. Thank you, Chase. I'd also like to thank my producer, Max McDonald, for stepping into the role of co-host for this episode. Thank you. Good to be here. I'd like to shout out our regular co-host, who can't be here this night for work reasons, Randall. (laughs) And then also, I'd like to shout out our sound man upstairs, the man with the piano, Justin. So... Everybody, I hope you guys tune in for future episodes. If you didn't like this episode or you really liked it and you want more information or resources that maybe we can offer you, please contact us through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or email, and we'll get back to you. If you have questions you want answered, we'll maybe be able to either answer those directly through those sources or on a future episode. Um, If you're on a platform that lets you rate and review us, please do so because doing that lets us build a reputation where we can, you know, reach out to people that I didn't go to school with and then uh, interview, you know, more wider span of biologists and scientists or professionals as well. So please tune in to future episodes. Goodbye.